<laughs> I'll show you, Spooky, and make scaredy cats out of your friends, too. Time for fun with Dr. Fright. Yeah. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, this is the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Tim Timebomb, Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shan, Austin Wilkin, and Rachel Tejada. Let's go! Trev here on behalf of the Boo Crew with episode 35. Joining us is one of the coolest and most fun people we've ever had the pleasure of having by the studio, as well as one of our favorite actors and writers. You fell in love with her in films like Hush, Oculus, Ouija Origin of Evil, and in the role of Theodora Crane in the incredible Netflix series The Haunting of Hill House. Kate Siegel is on the show. I just don't think you can really know so much after such a quick encounter. I'm just saying it's quick. Unlock the secrets of the Red Room. Tour her unbelievable collection of horror props and collectibles, including Freddy's glove and what she kept from Haunting of Hill House. She takes you behind the scenes of that game-changing sixth episode. Will the Cranes be back for a second season? All that and more after we spin this wheel that we just got rolled in here. You said you were hiding out in a secluded cabin. I was expecting it to be a little more, you know, evil dead-ish. Creaky walls and shit like that. This is Kate Siegel, and you're haunting another episode of the Boo Crew. Wheel of the Dam, Wheel of the Dam, it's time to spin the wheel of the Dam. Wheel of the Dam, Wheel of the Dam, it's time to spin the wheel of the Dam. Yes, it is true, there's a prize wheel on the desk, and every so often we give it a spin for some horror fun to guide a discussion. Here's what happened after our previous taping. It's time to spin the wheel. Yeah, but 70s films, 1980s films. 90s films, silent era, Italian, 1930s, Korean, 1940s, Spanish, 1950s, all horror movies. And I'm about to spin the wheel, and whatever it lands on is going to be our topic for next week, right? And we all do our homework, and we watch a film, and we talk about it. I'm going to spin it now. It looks like it's landing on 1940s horror movies. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> Films of the 1940s. Woo-hoo. Welcome to the 1940s. <laughs> oh gosh, I'm scared of that voice. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why Lauren is terrified of that voice. Really? Yeah, yeah that old timey voice. It's a Freddy Krueger of voices. We travel back to the land of Frank Sinatra, <laughs> Bobby Soxes, and Penny Arcade. Maybe like in a past life, I was like tortured by someone that talked that way. I mean, that's the only thing I can chalk it up to. Well, what do you feel? Is it fear? Or it, is it feels like nails on a chalkboard. Uh, oh, wow. And like, it well, just feel feels bad. gross. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's a lonely heart for a second. <laughs> What's buzzing, cousin? Don't snap your cap. Okay, I'm out. Bye. <laughs> All right, film with us of the 1940s. Who wants to go first? Don't snap your cap. So before we start and talk about the film that we watched, I just want to mention in looking up films of the 40s, Horror movies of the 1940s were amazing. Yes. Yes, they were. There's so many great films. Yeah, a lot to choose from. I was really blown away. I didn't realize, you know, I always think about the 30s when thinking of old, like old black and white horror, but the yeah. 40s is just riddled with amazingness. So with that being said, Rachel and I watched a film from 1942 put out by RKO called Cat People. (laughs) (laughs) Across the centuries comes this exciting story of a modern girl cursed by an ancient legend. The legend of the Cat People. 
Women whose kiss means death, whose love turns them into vicious, snarling beasts of prey. One thing before we get into the film is one thing that's interesting to mention about RKO. This was the first film of RKO's newly formed horror division at the time. So after the 1930s, the success that Universal was having with the horror movies, RKO's like, we want a horror, we want a horror movie section. <laughs> In that voice? <laughs> that's what they said? Picture that's the planter they, yeah. peanut guy with the monocle. God, I hate him. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah, so they hired this guy, Val Luton, to head up the horror. He used to work for David O. Selznick, and they said there's three rules to these films that you're going to do is uh, they got to be cheap, under $150,000. We're going to give you the titles, and they have to be short, like 80 minutes or less, I think, something like that. It's like the Blumhouse of the 40s. Mm -hmm. That's 100% what it feels yeah. like. And then the first film they did was a huge success, yep. and that's what we watched. So, Cat People. The plot is basically a Serbian fashion illustrator in New York who believes she's descended from a race of people who are shapeshifters. And that shapeshift into panthers when they are triggered emotionally with either like jealousy or love. And basically, the kind of the movie, the way it's set up, you don't know if it's true or not. Yeah. So the first half of the film, she it's kind of going back and forth of sort of, is she, is she crazy? Is she not crazy? There's this guy who sort of falls in love with her and she's just very resistant, but she's, she's afraid of falling in love with him, that it might trigger this thing. And, and we don't know if it's real or not. Yeah, it's a great like outsider story. The way that they shot it and the way they filmed it has a lot of, actually it's very beautiful, it's very noir, a lot of great shadows and contrast, but it's also very emotional in a lot of ways, especially for like as a woman's story as well. Yeah, very much so. It's funny looking at it through the lens of today and from a feminist point of view, it's very much a pro-feminist story about a woman who's resistant to all of these ideas that men have about her and... I'm trying not to give it away. It's very interesting to watch it. I don't think it's designed as a feminist movie, but it definitely plays as a feminist yeah, movie. Yeah, especially now. And it has what I believe, what some people believe, to be the first jump scare. Whoa! Whoa, really? What? Because the movie's so cheap, a lot of it, like Rachel said, is, has a lot of noir elements. There's a lot of shadows, a lot of play with light, and a lot of tension. There's a lot of tone and tension and a lot of sound design. And there's this one sequence. There's no talking. It's just people walking and the way it's cut mm -hmm. and the sound design and it creates this amazing tension and it has this brilliant jump scare that totally works. That scene works as good today as I'm sure it did in the day. Yeah, it totally startled me. I was like, oh, that just happened. <laughs> <laughs> wow. 1942. So I don't know if there's a, I can't off the top of my head, can't think of a jump scare before that, but it's like everything that is like the template of low budget horror filmmaking today and it still works as a scene in a pool that is just as good as any low budget horror movie today yeah it's super stylized kind of the lighting kind of reflects a little bit of like the blade runner kind of noirish like a present yeah. day light reflecting off the pool the only light source is bouncing off the water and reflecting on the on the walls it's a super cool movie like the terror element of it is just, it just it's great yeah it just builds and there's a great scene where she walks into a pet shop if anyone sees a scene, it's pretty amazing. It's uh, a scene where just like the animals freak out. And it's just like one of those moments you're like, is she a shapeshifter? Or is like, what's happening here? Like you really question who she is and they really draw out that suspense in the film, which is really fun. A couple of fun facts. So the film was shot at RKO Studios, which is a Gower and Melrose. It is now part of Paramount, the Paramount lot. That whole block used to be sort of cut in half. Half of it was RKO and half of it was Paramount. Film to stay cheap, they reuse sets. 
So they reused a set from the Magnificent Ambersons, the Orson Welles movie, which is the amazing staircase, which you see in the beginning of the movie, throughout the movie. And the zoo where it opens was from a Fred Astaire movie, right? Mm-hmm. Like Austin mentioned, the film was shot for actually under $150,000, and it actually brought in $4 million. Whoa! Whoa. Wow. So That's it was, a lot of money. Yeah, so actually the, the studio was struggling and so this movie actually brought the studio back yay uh, horror after yeah after the <laughs> after the failure of citizen kane i um, mean 1941 the studio wasn't doing very well and four million would be figure this out at dinner 30 times four million is what 120 million yeah whoa blockbuster success that's crazy so yeah cat people val luden I, you know the val luden story i feel like that's a whole other thing you like, do a whole show on yeah RKO. yeah for sure it was a game changer val luden and rko was a game changer in horror i love that that's a great movie cat people so i'm gonna go with the sequel Perfect. first of the cat people Ooh, <laughs> nice. Nice. two years later nice 1944 do you know why i came to you Amy? because you called like so that your childhood could be bright and full of friendliness. Also produced by Val Luton. All same cast, pretty much. Simon Simon, Kent Smith, and Jane Rudolph. Wow. Yeah, wow. Yeah. That's a good this, cast. Yeah, I know. Yeah. They were amazing. Yeah. A guy's wife dies. He gets remarried. They have a kid named Amy. Amy is super intuitive and starts talking to her imaginary universe kind of a turning point in act one when he's chasing around a butterfly a little boy grabs the butterfly he crushes it oh and he um he kills the butterfly so amy she's pissed because this is her world this this kid this little boy is messing with her world so she winds up and smacks him in the face (laughs) (laughs) he gets hit man it's pretty stiff man she gets sent to the office and they're trying to like figure out what's going on and blames being tossed to the parents and She's got to come to terms with the fact that she has imaginary friends. And initially, a little side note, Val Luton wanted to call it not Curse of the Cat People, but Amy and her friends. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) That's creepy. So much dough. Yeah. Yeah. They're trying to like ramp that up. She gets this ring from this, this old lady in a spooky house. And this ring has the ability to send her into like different worlds. Whatnot. I'm gonna take a little side thing. 1940s, we could do a whole on Universal films in the 40s and RKO. Wolfman was in 41. Cat People, Body Snatcher with Karloff. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that one. Right, Uninvited. Picture Dorian Gray, The Lodger. That's a good one with the um, unexpected guest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Abbott and Costello meets Frank. Yeah, like, movie, right? Yeah, favorite. Uh, I Walk with Zombies, 1943. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mr. High. 1941, and there's so many. Son of Dracula, 43, that's a great one. Frank Sammy's Werewolf, 43, so many. So now there's another Karloff Lugosi one. Are they in Body Snatchers? Yes. They're both in Body Snatchers, right? And then I think they did Bedlam? another one. Bedlam. Bedlam. Yeah. And Ghostbreakers. No, I haven't. Oh, I haven't seen that. This is a tip of the iceberg. But. Man. Ours spins right off the back of that, actually, with what yep. Tim was saying about those Universal monster movies in the 40s and Boris Karloff and everybody. Lauren and I checked out a film that opened on December 15th, 1944, starring Boris Karloff, Lon Chaney Jr., John Carradine, and Gwyn and Glenn Strange. Universal Pictures, The House of Frankenstein. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to repay you for betraying me. I'm going to give that brain of yours a new home, 
in the skull of the Frankenstein monster. It was directed by Earl Kenton, made for 354000 bucks. clocks in at just wow. over an hour. It's very short. Wow. This movie features that popular accent that Lauren hates that we were talking yeah. about. <laughs> it was used a lot in cinema in the 30s and 40s, and I actually looked up a little bit about this because I'm fascinated with it. It's called the transatlantic or mid-Atlantic accent. In upper-class boarding schools, it was taught to students during that time and Hollywood loved it apparently because it was a hard to place accent it was neither British nor American and there's actually a theory that it evolved from the technological limitations of old radios that would remove oh. all the bass tones out of yeah. a voice over enunciation and hitting those T's yeah. very hard yeah. was how they'd be heard clearly over these old radio speakers oh, wow. and it just carried through into theater and everything teachers at upper crust boarding schools would teach students how to talk like that and it was after World War II that it slowly started fading away, and now it sounds old timey to us. Then Marlon Brando showed up. <laughs> Sorry, mumble. <laughs> Mumbled his way into the 50s. So the plot summary is basically Boris plays the brother of Dr. Frankenstein's assistant who escapes from prison with his hunchback companion, and he promises that they will venture to the ruins of Castle Frankenstein to get the research paper and documents needed to do this. On the way, they take over a traveling horror exhibit and carry out revenge on those who imprison them. I thought that was really cool. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it was really, really neat. (laughs) Following 1943's Frankenstein meets the Wolfman that mashed up two monsters, House of Frankenstein is the first of Universal's Monster Rally movies, the first featuring multiple monsters. It was originally titled The Devil's Brood and was advertised as a team-up of Frankenstein's monsters, The Hunchback, A Mad Scientist, The Wolf Band and Dracula, under the guidance and coaching of the great Boris Karloff. Glenn Strange takes over as the role of Frankenstein's monster for this one. Lon Chaney Jr. is back as the Wolf Man, and John Carradine plays Dracula there for the first time ever because Bella Lugosi was unavailable due to scheduling issues, and he was in a touring play at the time, so he couldn't make it. But that would have been amazing if he was in it, too. Yeah, that would have been over the top. All those build as this monster rally. None of the monsters actually, the iconic ones anyway, actually share any screen time whatsoever at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't really until I think Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein where they really figured out how to, you know, nail that. Carradine did come back to play Dracula in 1945's House of Dracula, which is a sequel to this. And that movie was the first time ever on screen in a universal picture that you see a person transform into a bat. Wow. Oh, Oh, interesting. Glenn Strange went on to reprise his role as Frankenstein's monster in House of Dracula as well, and then Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. This marked Karloff's very last time in the Universal Classic Monster series of movies. Well, you know yeah. where he went after that? RKO. <laughs> wow, there you go. <laughs> it all leads back. It all leads back. Yeah. I thought it was really fun. It's just so cool that it's from the 40s and it's so different, but the same as horror we watch. It's mm-hmm. hard to explain. I really liked the black and white and like the shadows that were cast and just they had such amazing lighting yeah. for what they had. It's really. And I love how it was paced. The, the build is yeah. It's, it's a slight build, but it, it's 
defective. They ramp up slow. Yes. Right. 40s movies. I love it, though. It's like a cozy feeling, though, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's they, like they putting a blanket time. on. Yeah. It's, it's so cozy and fun. The pauses in between when people talked, the camera would focus on someone's emotion, and it just really took time with the movie, and it was really fun. I want to also bring up Boris Karloff's Guacamole. Right? <laughs> yes, I've heard about this. Um, because Trevor asked me to make it all the time, and I never do, but apparently it's like so good, so I'm going to read it off. Two avocados, one medium tomato, chopped fine, one small onion minced, one teaspoon of chopped canned chilies, one tablespoon of lemon juice, one teaspoon sherry, a dash of cayenne pepper, optional salt, pepper, peel and mash avocados, add tomato, onion, and chilies, then stir in lemon juice, sherry, and seasonings to taste, blending well. Serve as a dip for tortilla pieces or corn chips or as a spread. Makes 10 to 12 appetizer servings. Whoa, there you nice. go. Yeah, here, I gotta visualize <laughs> when Boris Karloff is doing this. <laughs> I want to say, I mean, this is an old article. Frankenstein era. I like that. Yeah. You gotta make it and then like eat it here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, good. yeah totally. Quick couple facts about the movie and we'll move on to uh, Leo here. The mummy was supposed to be in the movie, but they ran out of money. As for the salary, this is interesting. Boris Karloff earned 20 grand. Lon Chaney, 10 grand. John Carradine, seven grand, and Glenn Strange, 500 bucks. No way. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's the monster, third. really? So I watched 1941, for historical reasons, The Wolfman. Yeah! Woo! Whoever is beaten by a werewolf and lives becomes a werewolf himself. Oh, don't hand me that. You're just wasting your time. The wolf beat you, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he did. Directed by George Wagner, starring Lon Chaney Jr., Claude Rain, and Evelyn Ankers. So Dracula, all these Universal Monsters came before, and actually there were even werewolf movies before this one. The Werewolf of London, The She-Wolf of London. This movie is an efficient movie. Just over an hour. There's not a wasted scene in the movie. In terms of the directing, the acting, the editing. The sets are incredible. The sets are great. And it's like, the movie just flows. The plot just moves, you know, and it's quick. After spending 18 years in the United States, Larry Talbot, played by Lon Chaney Jr., returns to his ancestral home in Wales. Then he gets bit by a werewolf. It's a human protagonist with a tragedy type of movie. He's a victim of circumstance, so it's like he shares something with Frankenstein, for example. He didn't choose to become the Wolfman. He's a tragedy that came out of it. In this movie, there's a cameo, actually, by Bela Lugosi, who was supposed to be the Wolfman. But instead, Bela Lugosi plays the gypsy who ends up being the, the wolf that bites him. So in this movie, uh, the werewolf transformations, it's all the work of Jack Pierce. It was really interesting because when you watch this, you don't see it like today where we have technology where you can see a full facial transformation. Back then, it was just body parts, whether it was the feet or the arms, you know, like something, but it was like very static. You know, he wasn't moving or anything. I'm trying to pioneer those effects back in the day, but very effective because, you know, obviously people, you know, believed in it and scared people. Very well done. This movie has some really great fun facts. First off, Larry Talbot, that wolf that he fights, that he kills, it's actually his German Shepherd. It's Lon Chaney Jr.'s German Shepherd. That's his dog. (laughs) (laughs) So they film it from such an angle that it looks like a wolf, but, you know, this is the dog. Crazy about this, the original script of the movie did not have the Wolfman in it. The idea was not to show the Wolfman at all. And the studio was like, you know what? If we don't show it, it's not going to 
going to be an effective movie. Like, it's not going to make money. And they were right. So they actually had to go the extra mile, pioneer those effects that Jack Pierce made to sell the idea that here's a man who's turning into a wolf man. Aside from that, this is the movie that established all those myths. So the whole thing about getting killed by a silver bullet or the uh, pentagrams, the mark of the werewolf and all that, you know, like all that came from this one movie. People think that, oh, it's folklore. It goes back to 500 years. Like, no, 1941. Universal printed up. That's wild. And crazy enough, this movie was released, believe it or not. I think it was two or three days after Pearl Harbor in December, whatever, 1941. It's pretty tough to imagine, you know, the state of the country where it's like, oh, we just got attacked thinking about war. And it's like, Oh, but you know, this movie comes out, right? Well, because people love escapism. Like when people are uncomfortable, like Zoolander did really well after 9-11. And this is the one that started the bridge. So the next movies were like, you know, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. You know, that's when they have those team-ups of all the monsters. Yeah, this movie's really well done. And if you get to watch it on any of the streaming platforms, you know, it's like a digitally restored edition that's out now, of course. You know, over the years, it's been rescanned and all that. And it looks, it looks fantastic. Those sets look amazing, man. They really hold up over the years. And one last thing is going back to that scene where he meets Evelyn Anker's uh, character in that shop is he has this cane with a wolf on it. So that's the only prop that survived from that movie. Guess who had it for many, 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 many years? I'm going to throw out a, a name. Yep. Kirk Hammett from Metallica. No, but that's a damn good guess, though, man. <laughs> it is a good guess. But, Big collector. Yeah, it could have been, you know, Bob Burns. Really? really? Oh, Bob wow. Burns from right here in yeah, Burbank. Yeah. Wow. He had he it Bob Burns? He had it for many, many, many years, and apparently he sold it to a collector in Maryland. But that's the only last prop remaining from that movie. That's a great role for Lon Chaney Jr. Dude, speaking of... He's that, he's so... He's, so he's the only role for Lon Chaney yeah, Jr. Yeah. <laughs> but, so good at that. But, but did, he does you know, it really Did you guys well. notice anything about his performance in the movie, though? He didn't have an English accent? Oh, no, I mean, yeah, aside from that. <laughs> it's transatlantic. <laughs> I'm the werewolf! <laughs> he's like eight feet tall. Every actor in that movie is two feet shorter. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> He's a huge guy. That works though for the wolf. He, you know? yeah, yeah, it does. That's but what you want. I never like you know you watch the movie as a kid, right? Yeah, but you're thinking that's gonna be the Wolfman, right? You know, it's cool. But it's funny as an adult, you look back and I'm like, this fool's an NBA basketball star <laughs> <laughs> compared to the other guys. You know, that's where they got the idea for Teen Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Ghosts, vampires. Can't you talk about anything else? Listen. This is the Boo Crew Podcast. We're not like any other family. We're different. Because of where we grew up. Hill House. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio is one of the most talked about actresses and screenwriters in the industry right now. She's appeared in many television and film projects, including episodes of Castle, Ghost Whisperer, and Mob City. In 2016, a movie came out called Hush that introduced us to someone who can only be described as an absolute powerhouse and a gift to the screen. A person who not only co-wrote one of the most gripping thrillers that has come out in decades, truly resetting the genre, but absolutely carried the film, appearing on screen over 90% of the time with no dialogue. It takes more than just a special actor to take on that journey. A journey filled with overwhelming fear, suffocating anxiety, and immeasurable strength. She conjured up the magical ability to make us feel each one. 
She is pure lightning in a bottle. Since then, we've been lucky to see more of her work in a continuous thread of new groundbreaking genre classics, including Oculus, Ouija Origin of Evil, Gerald's Game, and most recently, in the role of Theodora Crane in the Netflix series called The Scariest TV Show of All Time, the critically acclaimed and WGA award-nominated The Haunting of Hill House. We are honored to welcome Kate Siegel to the show. Yeah! I will give you that 20 bucks later. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming and welcome to the uh, Red Room, I guess. I, it absolutely is the Red Room. And I want to assure everybody at home that this entire taping situation is much cooler than you're imagining in your head, even if you're imagining the coolest thing you've ever seen. Wow. I just walked around this house, like, just like jaw on the ground, my hands up by my chin, like a little happy child. That's so oh. amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thrilled to be here. That makes me so happy. I know, right? Well, it's awesome to know that you're a fan of all that stuff, too, right? All mm-hmm. the collectible stuff and props that are kind of all around here. Yeah. You got a similar situation going on? We do. At our house, we have an entire room we call the Nerd Room. And as whereas you guys lean a little bit more Harry Potter and Haunted Mansion, we lean a little bit more Doctor Who. Oh! <laughs> and a little bit like 80s genre. And really? So, yeah, oh, we've got it. Cool. I spend most of my day hiding Freddy Krueger's knife glove from my kids. Wow. So that is That's yeah. crazy. We'll have to share a tour sometime. Definitely. Do you guys have a TARDIS or something crazy? Everything we own is a TARDIS. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Well, we're such massive fans of your work and we're still having Haunting of Hill House nightmares, I think, all of us collectively. Me Thank too. you very much for that. Oh, yeah, you too. Yeah, I bet. Well, let's talk a bit about the movies that gave you nightmares. What's like some of the first horror films you remember seeing? Oh my gosh. Okay, so we're going to go on a deep dive there is a Care Bears episode that I still <laughs> go on <laughs> that I still to this day can't find anywhere and it's a bit like did you guys watch Channel Zero and yes. the yeah. first season where it is the puppet show that no one else remembers yes. except for these kids and yes. it happened in their head this may be the case with this Care Bears episode <laughs> but I remember there being a haunted house on a dock and they all had to run through the haunted house and they were all in danger and it was very dark and I still have nightmares about it and I have spent a lot of time Googling it, trying to find it. So maybe your audience can help me find this terrifying <laughs> Care Bears episode. Sounds like something that would be very Googleable, right? Right, it you should think, be. Yeah. And so maybe I did make it up. It wouldn't be the Or it was time. banned or something. Right, banned. <laughs> banned. Can someone retcon what? it if it doesn't exist? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the first thing that was the first thing that really scared me and i remember vividly having that stomach drop roller coaster feeling and being like oh my gosh like entertainment can do that it's not just happy times and feel good and learn how to spell it can make you feel all kinds of things and then from there i just would search out that feeling and i'm still searching out that feeling in books and in movies that otherworldly thing when it's over you're kind of grateful that you live a normal life because the world has teeth and it can bite you at any time as Stephen King says I just love seeing that what are some key moments and times where you've honestly felt that during a film I felt it a lot in Hush Hush was shot it was like a group of friends went out in the woods and shot a movie and so we were in the middle of nowhere shooting nights and it was just me and John Gallagher and we didn't have stunt people and we didn't really have time to go back to our trailers and everybody kind of knew each other and so there wasn't any of the I don't want to say professionalism but there wasn't any of the like work aspect of some of my other projects it was just a ragtag group of people making a movie and so a lot of that stuff was 
very creepy, very creepy me sitting in the house and feeling him looking at me. I know John Gallagher Jr. and I were close before shooting started, but once it started, he correctly distanced himself from me and I found myself very uneasy around him and his like piercing eyes. And he has this way of, I described it as, as pulling his eyeballs back into his head. Oh, wow. And I didn't like it at all. <laughs> because at, at first glance, his face is so, so warm, but his eyes were so dead. And he's such a tremendous actor that um, it required very little preparation for me. It required a lot of looking at him and being in this house, which when we found it, it was the our locations manager's grandmother's house, I believe. And it was full of animal heads and guns. <laughs> and so we'd be like moving in the couch for Maddie's living room and we'd find like three guns taped under another couch. Oh, <laughs> Which is funny because one of the big rules of Hush is no guns from the very beginning. And so I was like, I know I'm surrounded by guns. guns <laughs> Where did the idea for the movie come from? Because I, I heard a story. Okay. There are two versions of this. Okay. There is the press version, which is, it is partially the correct version, which is Mike and I were having dinner and we were talking about movies we loved and about plays we loved. And I had just seen Wait Until Dark, the theater version at, um, I think, the Geffen. And he was talking about how he always wanted to play with sound design in a major way in a film. And we just kind of hashed it out. And by dessert, the movie was completely, uh, basically broken down. Wow. And now the part that we left out in press that I, I feel comfortable saying now because I've done this in Hill House is that I was complaining to him that I hate the way I looked when I was talking on camera. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, my mouth is so weird and I sound like a bad Muppet and I hate everything bad about Muppet. it. Oh. And I was like, I want to, but you know, we all have these insecurities and yeah. watching yourself is so disturbing it's like uncanny valley all the way through you're just like oh, my face is reversed and i don't like it and so i was insecure at the time and just thought well if i was in silent films i probably would do better because i'm good at like looking at things that aren't there and imagining them and so it kind of was my insecurity movie and as we wrote it i took that almost joke and was like well what if i really wrote a movie about my insecurities which is about not being heard and not being listened to and being alone and dying alone without my family. So what started as this kind of jokey romp for me ended up for me being the dearest part of Hush as I'm able to watch it and be like, oh, I love that girl. I remember being so scared and lonely and feeling so impotent in my life. And at the risk of sounding like a jerk, I'm proud of myself for sharing that with the world. And that's what I think when... Most of the time, people who come up to me are girls between the ages of like 16 and 22 to talk about Hush. And that makes me feel so good because I think that's who I'm speaking to. I think everyone in this room, we can agree, have felt unheard in our lives. But I think women of a certain age really struggle with how to be heard and not just looked at. Was this the first time that you had even began a screenwriting process yourself? Yeah. Wow. That's well, impressive. I was, I'm, it's, yeah, I was just really lucky because Hush is written like a novella. If you read the script, which I don't think we've ever put out, but I have, I think I'm going to drop it on Reddit sometime soon. But then I, everyone amazing. will know wow. my Reddit like name. <laughs> 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 yeah. See how you it to us. Email it to us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but if you read it, it's all description. And right. by the time we wrote it, we knew it was going to be Mike directing, me starring, and Trevor producing. And so we wrote it 
in a shorthand so that we made notes to ourselves about how we wanted the camera to move and how I wanted to move and things like that. And so it doesn't read like a conventional script. And when I sat down to write conventional dialogue, it was like learning all over again. There's some great scenes like when he's about to smash the antagonist with a rock and you distract him. Yeah. So quick. Like that's a great scene. That was written at the Stanley Hotel, which is the Overlook. Yeah, yeah. really? Mm-hmm. That's random. We had our first draft and we turned it in and we got the note back that every writer hates and every writer gets, which is, it's missing a gear. Mm. And uh, like, oh, I don't know what that means. Oh, stupid gears. Gears are for jerks. <laughs> <laughs> and so we took a vacation to the Stanley Hotel, stayed in room 217. Of course. Got, <laughs> yes. got whiskey blitzed. And we were like... All right, what's the worst thing that could happen in Hush? And we're like, well, someone comes to rescue her. Like, okay, so what if what if the worst thing happened? And then we worked our way out of that corner. That's cool. Wow. Yeah, and so that character, John, was, a, I think, a third draft edition. It's just shot so well. Yeah. Like, it's editing, everything. It's oh, great scene. Was, yeah, thank it's you. Intense. Yeah, because there's so many moments where I'm like, what would I do? And then, well, what is going to happen to her? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And oh, you, yeah. you just really captured such the great suspense. Her character was really, had a great arc. Thank yeah, you. I just watched it again, and it's so stressful. <laughs> I love it. It's great. It is. I mean, you know, from the opening scene, it sets the tone where you see her, you know, she's we're cooking dinner, right? Uh-huh. And, you know, you hear the noises of what does this sound like? What does the computer clicking sound like? What does a fire alarm sound yeah, like? Yeah. It's like we don't think about those things because we're blessed to have hearing and we're able to talk and all that. But it's such a refreshing tone in a horror movie to catch that. Yeah, and it sets set the mood. Like what it sounds like and then what. You yeah. don't hear. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Maddie's inner, that whoosh whoosh sound is a combination of the sound of a womb and a glacier breaking apart. Oh, wow. Yeah. Our sound designer who have used since then, he was a genius. Mike has been using him for a really long time. Jonathan Wales, he really created that and was paid close attention. Fun fact. Those are not my hands at the beginning because I did cooking weird. <laughs> <laughs> Said who? Chris Macy, our producer. Really? And he was like, if she's making this meal, she knows how to cook and you don't. That's the wrong way. <laughs> You're chopping wrong. And you can kind of see where like he's crushing the garlic and then I'm cutting asparagus with a steak knife or something. Yeah. And he's like, no, Kate. So that was really fun. <laughs> It's kind, of, it's kind of like paying homage to Halloween, the original word. It's Deborah Hill picking up the knife in the kitchen, not Michael Myers as a kid. It's, it's right. the producer, you know? Yep. They do that a lot, actually. There's someone else's hand in there. And a quick spoiler alert, but I just loved how the mask came off so quickly. Yeah, yes. we got, you know, yes. that was so unexpected. Not only that, it but, it's sta- but it's stayed off. Right. Like the rest yeah. of the movie. Yeah. Something you don't see. That's, that's like a twist. That's one of the twists well, it, you, don't, you, you don't see. It does that great thing of creating a now what? Like, I think the yes. best thing you can do in a movie is create a now what Mm -hmm. and this movie does it like every 10 minutes (laughs) it's like all the expectations get wiped away immediately and then you have no idea what's going to happen that was something we definitely had an eye on painting ourselves into corners and then trying to think of ways out of it what i love about that is for maddie when the mask comes off she knows his intention which is a way of doing it without him having to speak to her or her having to hear him but she knows once she's seen his face he wants her dead. Yeah. He doesn't want to do other nefarious things. It's a quick communication. 
It also says a lot about him that he's just completely nuts. Mm-hmm. And all bets are off. All the things you know about a killer, this guy doesn't play by those rules. Yeah, there's like no real motive deeper than psycho. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not only that, but yeah, Maddie, who's an intelligent final girl, but she's conjured up these multiple scenarios in her head where it's like, you see an ending, you, you think it's an ending, you're like, oh shit, she's dead. And it's like, nope. Yeah. Man, I'm like, that got me. That got me good. Yay. Totally. I was like, what is going to happen now? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah, because if we hadn't tricked you guys into believing anything could happen, then that twist wouldn't have worked. Right. Right. If it had been more conventional in the beginning, maybe people wouldn't have bought it. Well, moving on to Hill House. First of all, congratulations on another amazing journey. (laughs) Unfucking believable. Stunning and beautiful. And Theodora, the character, has so much going on in this. And once again, Again, your skills as just an incredible dramatic actor really brought her to life, as did everyone else in this ensemble and their roles. And Theodora has definitely emerged as an audience favorite. People are even getting tattoos of you. They did. Right? <laughs> <laughs> what is it like to have to say goodbye to that character for a while for you? Saying goodbye to Theodora was a mixed blessing. She was very uncomfortable to be. She's in so much pain. And I'm not... I'm not a huge, like, you have to be the character to act the character actress, but there was something about the chemistry of the cast and the family that really worked on all of us. And it was nine months and we were in Atlanta and most of us hadn't been in Atlanta before, so we didn't have any roots there. And we were asked to be very emotionally intimate right away. And so it felt like family, it felt like a family that wasn't working. And so you carried around those feelings of those scenes That wasn't like a method acting thing. Like I didn't ask people to call me Theodora on set, (laughs) which I'm going to do for my next thing, no matter what the character is. (laughs) (laughs) Always the last character you have to (laughs) But that emotional trauma that we were all working through, I think really worked on us. And so there are so many things I like I, I still listen to Theo's music. I wear some of Theo's clothes, but where's the gloves? Oh, the gloves are in our nerd room. Oh! <laughs> yes, I want to ask, like, what props you kept from? Oh, what? So, um, from Hush, I have Bitch's Tag, the kitten, oh, the cat. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. amazing. Says bitch and has my name and the phone number. What else do I have? And the mask and the crossbow. <laughs> have you so, figured out how to, uh, how to load it yet the problem isn't how to load it it's how to pretend that you can't load it <laughs> you need to create your own oh my god that was so many hours oh, it was so painful to watch oh my god yeah. just Whatever. watching it yeah like we just had to tighten that thing within an inch of its life and still it was like so easy to load <laughs> I kept loading it and then Theo, I have I have her funeral suit, which Lynn Falconer created for me, and mm-hmm. I've never had bespoke clothing, and to have something made to your body, you know, and then I got pregnant and ruined it, so. right. <laughs> but I still have it at home. And gloves, I have most of the gloves. And what else do I have of Theo's? We have um, a couple of the funeral programs from Nell's Funeral. I have, oh gosh, I'm just trying to go through it. I'm notorious on set for stealing books from live sets. To oh, yeah. cool. Nice. <laughs> and so I have, like, I don't like the Devil Wears Prada was in Theo's house. And I was like, this shouldn't be here. <laughs> that's so cool yeah, I just, got, in Hush it was a Stephen King book I yeah. remember 
Mr. Mercedes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't believe how they build those amazing sets. And then what happens to them? Like these elaborate, beautiful sets, which I would love to live in. What happens? Do they just tear them down? Yeah, and- they're gone. The exterior is real, right? The Hill House exterior is real. Everything interior was built on a soundstage. Wow. A two-story house that they built with the idea of keeping it alive for future seasons. But then Mike was like, nope, hills are done. Really? Burn it down. (laughs) (laughs) So they did a fire sale. Oh, we have the piano. We have the Hill House piano. Damn. Yeah. That's like an entire actor's salary to get a great yeah. piano. <laughs> and the rest of it, like you did fire sale, people would buy things. We had rented stuff, but it's just gone. It was probably one of the most stunning sets I've ever seen next to Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak set, probably. Like, it's just gorgeous. Yeah. Patricio was nominated for that set. Where were we during the sale? I know, right? Uh, Man. Did I see the <laughs> Oculus mirror chilling out in the oh, house yeah. somewhere? Oh, Is that like in your house somewhere? I could picture it like... It is. It is. <laughs> you can see that I just rolled my eyes so hard. This is a shout out to my husband who keeps trying to put it in nurseries. <laughs> but now it's mounted on the wall. We, I think we have the original from the movie and then we have two mock-ups. Okay, wow. wow. Well, if you ever want to get rid of anything. We, I will give you one. There's one in our garage. <gasps> oh and so God. this is <laughs> now. You can have one of oh our Oculus mirrors. We have a wonderful home here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, are my favorite guest. Has the Oculus mirror appeared in every one of his films since mm-hmm. Oculus? Yep, the Flaniverse all lives within the Oculus mirror. Wow. Oh, so it'll always be there. That's amazing. So cool. <sighs> It's so creepy. It's so creepy. I'm curious about how the interaction between the adult actors and the child actors was, because there's not a whole ton of scenes where the two intersect, but I would imagine there would have to be a lot of communication so that timelines and everything and characteristics are on par with each other. How did that dynamic work? Well, the first step of that was Annie McCarthy cast really well it just matched up well of course lulu and elizabeth reeser had worked together and they kind of built it around that and then the adults were cast first and then lots of tapes came in and they just looked for child actors that had the same feel and you know mckenna who plays young theo she has a much better resume than i do she's a superstar (laughs) i know she did a ton of work we passed a journal back and forth a little bit at the beginning but then once it starts going there's not a lot of time And so I know that I would request to see, like when we were doing the funeral scene, the wake, the long shots, I asked to see her to take of Don't Touch Me to mom and dad when she had her two big breaks, just to get a sense of how, because I knew that was like a real traumatic moment that she probably is reliving in those moments. And I wanted to know what her physicality was and what her vocal tone was so that it could feel a bit like Theo turned back into a little girl in that moment, which should be very disturbing because Theo is kind of like this gruff, hard candy shell type of a chick. And then when I would get lost, Mike would often tell me to think of McKenna and not even think of Theo, but just think of McKenna walking around in the world. And I don't know if he was doing similar things on the kid's side. And I don't know how he was talking to some of the other adult actors. But for me, just picturing McKenna, just picturing McKenna in the world, I felt like a like a little girl again. And that helped. I don't know if that's a great answer. Yeah, oh, that's yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Great. Amazing, yeah. Especially for that that moment, because I love that moment and how it feels like an echo. Because mm-hmm. that that even might be it's a 
possibly in the same shot, which has that great turnaround. Yes. When the father walks in and all the kids are kids. Yeah. It's one of my favorite moments I've seen maybe ever because it's so perfect. And then seeing young Nell is just so perfect Yeah, because it puts you right in the emotion of that character immediately and totally visually. Yeah. And then come back and everyone's in the same positions as adults is so well done. And I think that's in the same, is that in that's the, same the same shot? Up, yeah, it's yeah, right it's around there. Same, yeah. Yeah. Episode six, uh, Two yep. Storms. Two yeah, Storms. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah, it is. It's the second section of that. Okay. We start there and it ends with us all just completely on the floor. It's so good. <laughs> it's crazy. It's like what, like almost 30 minutes, one continuous shot? There are three cuts in the adult version and three cuts in the kids version. So oh, okay. the takes are all, I think it's seven minutes, 14 minutes, 11 minutes. Wow. So seamless. Yeah. It was planned out. I think that was one of the things that Michael Fimignari and Mike Flanagan pitched when they pitched the show. This kind of tent pole in the middle where everything changes and they wanted to do it as one long take. But then the logistics of that are next to impossible. Yeah. yeah. So did you know about this episode? You knew about that from way early on. Yeah. Were you anxious about it as you knew it was shooting that episode was coming? I think I was excited. I had done theater and I knew that most of the cast had done theater mm. and it has that feel to it. I think um, what scared me was the drunk progression. A fake drunk is really bad. It will be twice as bad if you have to stare at it for 11 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and because of it, you know, when that comes up to me in any other thing, I'm like, well, what if I did a take actually drunk? Could I do it drunk? Like, is there a logistical reason why I can't be drunk for this? I'm an adult. I get to make my own decisions. But I couldn't because we would have to go back and to be that drunk and to be able to hit all my marks, I couldn't be that drunk. And so we have all these little things like the whiskey bottle was filled with apple cider vinegar so that it gave you a natural like, ugh, gross. (laughs) And when you drink it, you can't drink it like water. You have to drink it like vinegar so that you're sipping as opposed to gulping. And all these little things I would do to kind of help myself out and then right at the end before we would start shooting mike as a director would turn to me and go i'm gonna need all of your crutches i felt kind of like you know michael scott when he starts giving away his improv gun <laughs> <laughs> and, he'd be like, and i need the other one too and I, you know, <laughs> so you take them all away from me to give theo that unbalanced feeling where it, i just for me in that episode She's always reaching for something. She's always just like trying to reach for something until that thing becomes Kevin. And that was, I think, the marriage of me planting all of these crutches for myself and then Mike taking them away at just the right moment so that it feels like I am constantly reaching for something. Was there anything like creepy that happened on the set paranormal wise or have you witnessed anything in your day to day life? Do you believe in ghosts? I'm hopeful about ghosts. Yes. I have never experienced it. I think Hill House does a great job of asking us, what is a ghost? And those haunted memories, like you can believe your childhood home is haunted just because you're back there again. So I went to an acting class at the Beverly Hills Playhouse and they had to sell one of their theaters and it became a restaurant called Atrium in Los Feliz. And I was yep. just there this past weekend with one of my good friends and we were sitting there having brunch in this place where we did all this super weird actory things. <laughs> we would break in there after class and after going out with our friends and like have weird bonfire type weird powwow behavior. And yet now we're sitting there well behaved at brunch with my, you know, six week old infant. And to me, that was extremely haunted. That room was full of ghosts, but not because 
of anything I saw, yeah. but because I knew that we were there on some level because, you know, time doesn't exist. Have you seen Demon House? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. yeah, apparently if you want to see ghosts, see Demon House. <laughs> oh, right. So it's this documentary about this super, super haunted house. Okay. Like legitimately haunted. It's like really evil. Not like ghosts, like, you know, shadows in the corner ghosts, but people actually getting possessed. Demon House. On camera. Is it streaming? Uh, yeah, it's on yeah. Netflix. Zach Baggins is the guy who made it. He's Zach a ghost Baggins, hunter Demon who House. does a travel channel show. Yeah. And yeah. he has a, like a paranormal museum now in Las Vegas. But yeah, he put this documentary together. And there's a warning yeah. at the beginning. There's a yeah. warning. That I, I won't watch it because yep. I'm freaked out. Yep. You just oh. watch the warning, right? What does it say that demons can possess you through electronic something like means, that. something like that. So watch it at your own risk because everybody who was editing went through a bunch of stuff and you know basically they said the movie's cursed. One of the camera amazing. So it comes yeah. with a risk. One of the camera operators gets possessed and has to leave and they have tried to do an intervention of him and he's like super like you know like like you see in the movies like someone who's violently not themselves. Wow. Yeah. On, on film. On yeah on, on camera. Definitely watching. <laughs> 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 and that was the last time she was right. <laughs> you have almost what I would call like a soliloquy in the eighth episode off the side of the road. Oh, man. And that was I think that scene probably made you one of my favorite actors of all time. That was yes. insane. Yeah. Tell us about preparing for that, because that, you, you were very vulnerable in that scene. Yeah, um, I do want to point out that today I had to jump on Twitter because I think someone called that a long wet fart. <laughs> what? <laughs> and I was like, I can't, I can't bear it. I can bear a lot on Twitter, but that was not a long wet what fart. What does that mean? <laughs> I seriously dropped my iPad, almost broke it. Wow. In that scene because I was like, fuck, I didn't see that coming. Right. The shit out of me. But and then yeah. the speech that yes, comes after, exactly. right? Seconds later, you get this amazing dialogue between your character and uh, Shirley. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, Man, my heart just broke. Like, oh, it's just heartbreaking. Thank you. But beautiful. This is something that in my mental weirdo world is called an inactable moment. There's no way to know how a human being behaves when the ghost of their dead sister interrupts a fight with their living sister on the way back to their haunted childhood home. <laughs> Touche. Yeah. And so the best thing to do for me is to memorize it word perfect without any intonation and then just go get messy just get messy and if you at the end of it you feel embarrassed and naked you've probably done it right how many takes was that the one, one? wow that was the first take wow. Wow. and i say in that take i say and it's what mom sees i put mom in the present tense as alive and mike was like you did this thing we're gonna go again and i was like can we just she's can we just whatever and so we Kind of did it again to get the audio alt, mm. but they ended up using the one where I messed up. It's meant to be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can't really do that more than once right. or twice. Yeah. Then you yeah. start being haunted by your own choices. Sure. You're like, oh, that felt really good. But then you're planning it and it's all a mess. So you were pregnant while filming, right? Mm -hmm. You right there are my hero because I can barely get dressed <laughs> when I'm pregnant. <laughs> I want to know, like, what is the scariest thing that happened to you when you were pregnant? Because I've got lots of horror stories. Oh, yeah. It is a horror movie in just right? a nine month period. Every woman who has had a baby 
has lived this time in her life where her hair falls out in chunks. Yes. Parts of her body bleed that should not be bleeding. And you call a doctor and they're like, sorry, you're pregnant. <laughs> and you're like, what the? It's like a David Cronenberg movie. <laughs> 100%. And then once you have one of these little monsters, <laughs> everything in your life that is terrifying happens between the hours of like 3 and 6 a.m. Yes, right? You have what these weird that? found footage monitors in your bedroom <laughs> that like these kids just stare at you with glowing eyes for no reason. You hear crying when there's no crying. Yes. You are completely unprepared to be transported into a horror movie. Yes. It's crazy. I had yeah. gestational diabetes. Oh, which, no. That was horrible. And I pretty much had everything you can experience in pregnancy. Like, I did it all. Yeah, I had the HG and was Aww. puking like Linda Blair. Oh, oh man. man. Yeah, and so the real hero is Levy, who plays Trish. <laughs> because when we were shooting that Red Room fantasy, I was very pregnant, and all those hands on my face was terribly <gasps> oh, oh. nauseating. And oh, so I would gosh. leave between takes to go puke. What? And then I would have to, you know, rinse my mouth out and brush my teeth and pu- apologize to Levy and get back to making out. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and so gosh. that you was. Couldn't, a, you are a soldier. That yes, is. My <laughs> but it works, right? Because, like, she's got. <laughs> I watch it and I remember thinking, just get through the day, just get through the day, just get through the day. <laughs> and it translates to some real acting. Yeah. Like, it really yeah. looks like I'm going through something. Uh, yeah, you couldn't use that in the scene. Just the just, yeah. <laughs> The hands pull you and then just vomit. Them. It's not cute. It's not cute. Like they still wanted me to be a hot chick. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Oh my god. But there, there's there's this great funny line where you're having a fight with your sister with Shirley, and it's uh, a camera it goes like, "You kiss my husband, you punch in the boobs." <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. The controversial boob punch. Um, Elizabeth Reeser and I very much wanted Shirley and Theo to feel like sisters and not like actresses playing sisters and so we talked about there being an extremely strange moment in a fight which i think all sisters can understand and some of the execs were like the boob punch is weird we're not sure if the boob punch will work like the boob punch will work (laughs) and i don't know to this day whether or not it works but it it works for me (laughs) i think it worked it cut that tension yeah Yeah, you need a moment you had to be in the car together moments later so it's one of those it needed something it's a very long fight it goes on for lots of episodes and it (laughs) really does it needs some and it's never resolved you have that moment where she helps me up in episode eight but at the end of the show, I still move out of our guest house. Right. I leave. So they... Um, because of the boo punch? Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> she never spoke to Elizabeth. <laughs> what, is, what is your thought about the ending? Do you feel like everything was resolved? There's this picture that's painted as, you know, it's a happier ending. Mm-hmm. There's this tones where like, maybe it's not that happy. Well, I think it doesn't really matter what I think. It matters what you guys think. Like, it yeah. matters what the audience thinks. Right. So what did you think? I love the resolution. You know, I thought it was great. It's happy. Everyone's together. But you're missing Nell. You mm-hmm. feel so bad she's gone because she's she such a lovable character. Yeah. You know, but she brought all of you together in death. So I thought that was beautiful. But I kind of feel like now the house is still evil. Mm-hmm. It's still taking lives. It's consuming lives. Is there an alternate ending? We heard. Yeah, we've was. heard of it. We are out of the red room. So I know there's been some like there was an idea of having Luke's sobriety party be in revealed to be the red room and that we all never got out mm. that is not the case we are happy uh, the sweet cranes having been through like, you sadistic monsters the, the twitter verse that's like just murder them all. but the house yeah. wouldn't let them go the house can't be that yeah. fooled can it i don't know 
Is love that powerful? Is love that powerful? That's yeah. a good question. If we're asking what is a ghost, what other questions should we ask? Right. Mm. Yeah. Fair That's point. Good. It all goes along with everything I've seen Mike Flanagan do, which is just what makes him such a compelling filmmaker, is that he ignores and goes against and completely destroys all the tropes that we've come to expect in horror. And he's adventurous enough to take those leaps and do things that are unexpected and almost do the opposite of what's been done. And that just, it's amazing and thrilling to watch. Yeah. I guess an example of that too from Hill House and obvious examples, it's those like 43 ghosts or whatever there is. There's tons of ghosts hidden in Hill House all over the place. And never once is there any camera attention on the ghost or a musical cue to announce the presence or anything that really acknowledges that it's a horror film. What do those moves do to inspire you as an actor and as a horror fan? Wow. Well, I think what you're talking about is Mike's love affair with horror as a genre, as a a way to send a message, as a way to tell a story. He is a horror fan in the ultimate way and he watches everything and he he just devours it and so when he's shooting it he is full of joy and almost romance Hmm. it's like a romantic take on it like a tell he loves (laughs) it and those ghosts weren't as a a marketing ploy that was just like wouldn't it be cool if this thing happened (laughs) yeah Yeah. that's what it feels like yeah Yeah. wouldn't it be cool yeah wouldn't be cool if and that kind of energy on set and then he tends to cast people who love horror. And so we all get to play. Wouldn't it be cool if like, wouldn't it be cool if you switched out adult Nell for kid Nell in the casket? Could we do it? How could it be done? Like, wouldn't mm, it be so wow. cool? And that is playing to an audience that I think has recently been revealed as existing, which is a, a highbrow horror audience. People who love genre movies, but want them to have character development and want them to have layers and want to be able to watch it four or five times and don't just want to mock movies as they watch them and i think mike as a member of that group was like i want to make content for those people i mean he's been doing it since college the man is is like a hitchcock he just can't not be making horror movies and as he gets more and more experience it starts to just kind of explode and i think hill house is that Almost like the puberty of Mike Flanagan. <laughs> <laughs> Heard it here first. <laughs> Sorry, honey. <laughs> Calling you puberty. Um, but yeah, where he just, it was like, wouldn't it be cool if, and like, yeah, I could do this. And it's like the equivalent of finding the Victoria's Secret catalog. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> and I've seen, sometimes he'll show me a little bit of what he's working on. And I've seen a little bit of his next project which is Dr. Sleep. Yeah. Yes. And it is, you guys are going to lose your mind. <laughs> oh. Because him, he went nine months, directed all the episodes of Hill House, and then went immediately on to Dr. Sleep. And so he made this like huge leap in style and skill and taste. And it is epic what it's like to send a horror fan to do and the sequel to The Shining. Stephen King fan? Yeah. Uh, Stephen King's my favorite. Man. Best. Yeah. And Stephen King had lots of great things to say about Hill House, too. Yeah, he yeah. loved it. We keep trying to get him places, but that man will not leave Maine. <laughs> will not hang out with us. All I want is new dad, Stephen King. <laughs> I want my dad. I don't understand. <laughs> I know you guys toyed with the idea of kind of turning the cast of Hush into kind of a, a company, a mm-hmm. theater, a movie company, if you will, a theater group, basically. Yeah. And that's kind of happened with... 
Elizabeth and yourself and Henry Thomas and Lulu Wilson. Mm-hmm. What are the advantages of having a core group of talent that can be depended on and get inspiration from? I can only speak kind of from yeah. my department, which is the acting department. Mm-hmm. And um, what's great about that is especially when you're playing family members with them or some kind of intimate role, there's already a shorthand, there's already a chemistry, and that's something you can't fake. And also, it's nice to work with your friends. Like, it's really great to see people you haven't seen in a while. And when Mike is writing for those of us he's written for before, he knows how to give us what is best. Mm. He knows how to set up the set and the spike between Henry and Elizabeth so that they can kind of play off each other. He knows to put these two people in a scene, you're going to get this kind of energy. And it's really fun. And then there's always new discoveries. You know, every project you get one or two surprises like Victoria Pedretti who came out of nowhere and you know basically I want to live in my house because acting with her is so much fun because it's just it's like a live wire seeing as this show is very complex with all its moving parts and you've seen it in pre-production and in production how did you take it in after it was all done and that experience must have been pretty cool to be able to see it all the moving parts put together so I watched a rough cut of episode three without sound editing and without color correction and with just the most basic like not going through and picking each take just like placeholder takes and i had a total breakdown (laughs) i crawled under my bed and basically emotionally speaking and was like i can't do this this was my big break and i have shit the bed i was tear i hated every second of myself on camera and so at that moment i was just insecurity like you just it was just too much me and too much whatever and i couldn't watch it and have an eye for how sound would help certain things but i was just like oh gross and so i said please i can't watch anymore i can't i can't handle it my mental health can't take it and this has been a running theme because I used to leave hush screenings because I couldn't watch myself. And Mike was like, you've got to you got to figure that out. That's not what people want. They want you to to show up, sit there and be grateful that this amazing thing is happening and be joyful and celebrate. And, you know, he said it way less corny than that. So I like got myself to therapy and figured it out. And so I hadn't seen it until it came out. And then I would watch clips of it on press. And then Mike was gone in Atlanta and I was like seven months pregnant. And I was at home and I was like, all right, if I'm going to break down, it's going to be OK. And then I just binged it. <laughs> yeah. yes. And I was like, this is amazing. And I, of course, there are moments that that I'll never forgive myself for not like fully achieving. But getting to see my friends do great work and like watching Henry and watching Victoria and watching Ollie and like the joy I felt seeing what Mike and Mike, Michael Fimniari and Mike Flanagan had put together. It was really, really cool. And so I th- hope that that will lead me to be able to do that in the future, to see it as a celebration of my friend's hard work, as opposed to an opportunity to beat myself up, which right. is, you know, Do you think good. that watching the super rough episode three, that's your big episode, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So to watch the super rough version and then watch the final polished version, do you think watching those two was helpful in that process? It was helpful to me as an actress and damaging to me as a human (laughs) 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 Um, you know there's this is it Andy Warhol some I think it's Andy Warhol who says it doesn't matter what you feel about the art while people are judging it go out and make more art Mm. and that's kind of it you just have to keep going and the thing I learned from the rough cut versus the final cut of three 
was that it doesn't matter what I'm feeling. It matters what the audience is feeling. And so I could just be thinking about whether or not they'll have grilled cheese at lunch. But if I really want a grilled cheese, that's going to look to somebody like I really want to bone that girl at the bar. Right. Like it doesn't matter what the act is. It's a, you're part of a machine that is creating feelings in other people. And so to work yourself up for me, to work myself up as an actor, I get in my head and then I start trying to show off how much I'm feeling. Whereas if I can just stop and listen and be in the moment, I can allow other people's space to have feelings. And so that to me was the difference between the rough cut and having sound design because sound will oftentimes signal to people, now it's time to have a feeling. And if there's going to be sound design and knowing as an artist that they will put sound design in, I can pull back a little bit on those moments because I'm part of a team. It's not just, ta-da, the Kate show of Kate acting for Kate. So that was a hard learned lesson. And here we are. <laughs> yeah, there was well, there was genius in the music too, the soundtrack. It's just like that somber piano tone. It's often the same track, the same song where it feels creepy. Mm-hmm. And then it takes that turn where it's like, oh, lighthearted moment. And you're like, oh, I feel safe. Nothing's going to jump out at me. It's <laughs> 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 a beautiful score though. Mike's been working with the Newton brothers who, fun fact, not brothers. Oh, what? <laughs> cool guys. But, um, they are. Oh my god, that sounded so bad. Um, no, um, they're good friends of us. <laughs> but I always think it's funny that they're not brothers. Um, yeah, he, but they have that too. That same romantic sentimentality. I think that is a like the flag in the ground of the Flanniverse. Sure. There's a certain yeah. amount of romance mm-hmm. in everyone. Everyone's in love with their job. It's hard to make a beautiful horror film. I seriously, I cried twice during the, during watching the series. I'm Aww. like. You know, these kind of things don't affect me. You don't expect to cry at a horror movie, but you felt that sadness at certain points. You know? But isn't that real? The horror, yes. the horrific moments in your life are so beautiful yep. in this like heavy way where you feel the weight of everything and it kind of washes over you right. in, the, in the way that depression from the other side of it can be beautiful. It was like the, you know, all, yeah. all those flashbacks, well, not the flashback, but the moments with uh, Nell's wedding and all that towards the end when she's telling her siblings all of you you're all taking fault for like i'm sorry i wish i was a better brother better sister and then she's like no you were yeah like, no you couldn't have changed it no it was fine you know it was kind of beautiful because she was just like guys we're good we're fine so it's like man that was so sad but in a very beautiful way you i know? remember weeping just weeping openly when i read the rest is confetti when i read mm-hmm. that speech yeah. just yeah uncontrollably because it it defined so much of what I felt in my own life. And I was like, oh, people are going to love that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, tattoo that on my face. <laughs> was that a line that was out of the original source material out of the book or no? No, no that is romantic Mike Flanagan. Oh. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> I know that guy. <laughs> Speaking of, Theodora's going to live on in uh, yeah. your household. I have my own Theodora. Oh, Theodora Flanagan. Congratulations. Oh, thank yeah, you. Yeah, seriously. Thank Does you. she have her own gloves? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet, but she will. Is there, as a horror fan, is there a favorite heroine that you like? That oh, you, you know, this or? is, um, this isn't actually, I guess it's sort of horror, but Ripley from Alien. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's everything. Yeah, yeah. She was, and she's just badass and emotional and feminine and sexy and yep. makes bad choices and then makes good choices. I don't know if that counts as a horror, as a final girl. Yeah, oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Alien that's, is a straight up horror yep. movie. That's what I thought too, even though it's like in a sci-fi cape. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's a haunted house movie. 
Oh my God, you're so right. That's <laughs> true. Yeah, I love that. And then Aliens is the monster movie. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Alien 3 is something we all cleverly forget. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it didn't happen. It's fine. <laughs> yep. So what are your favorite recent horror movies that you've seen? Oh, you know, this isn't recent, but I saw it recently. It was Dark okay. Song. Oh, oh you heard about that. Dark Song. Oh, 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 I'm so glad I get to plug this for you, you <laughs> awesome. guys. If you like Tush and if you like strong female leads, yeah. Dark yeah. Song. It is, it's sort of a revenge movie and it is sort of a possession film. Ooh. Wow. And it is gorgeous. It'll stay with you for days. Where did you discover this? Mike had it on, I think it's streaming. I think it's iTunes. Okay. And wow. we had heard about it a bunch of times and that was ooh 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 it just blew my mind. <laughs> nice. Ooh, yeah. I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. One of the most satisfying endings of a movie I've ever seen. Wow. wow. And you go you're watching it and you're thinking to yourself like, "Oh, this is they're so screwed right now because they've set themselves up for something they can't achieve and they do." Oh. Speaking of satisfying endings, I love Hush so much and I'm thinking, you know, that was such an original film. Now, are you going to write some more, perhaps? Or I am. The problem is that babies eat your brain. Um. Yes, they do. And um, my thing is, I I like to write people I want to hang out with, and situations I think are real. And every time I sit down to write right now, it's just boring people complaining about how tired they are. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's like, I don't, even I don't want to watch this movie. And so I'm kicking some ideas around, but I have to get my brain underneath me again, or at least some new version of my brain where I feel like I'm contributing something to the space. Understood. Well, we're ready whenever yes. well, we're waiting Hell for yeah. you. Hell yeah. <laughs> yes. I'll try to move as quickly as possible. <laughs> but enjoy that baby time because it goes so fast. I know. They smell so good. I know. Uh, it's crazy. I'm leaking right now talking about I'm it. I'm sorry. Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Speaking of. Okay. This necklace is made of breast milk. <gasps> Do you know you can turn cool. your breast milk into jewelry? I didn't know that. Really? Yeah. <laughs> she got like two pieces made yeah, by this, this lady. Is my rose. It's actually have, very beautifully done. Yeah, that's cool. I had expired breast milk. And I was <laughs> yeah. like, what am I going to do with this? This is liquid gold. It is liquid gold. <laughs> and then someone's like, just turn it into jewelry. This lady does it. And I was like, really? That's and then I saw idea. it and I'm like, oh, it's so pretty. So beautiful. She cooks it, right? Yeah. Like yeah. it looks like she's cooking meth or something, right? But it's the process <laughs> is very meth like. It's very Go weird. But Breaking it's cool. bad too. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, an underground breast milk thing. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's your script idea. Right there. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> so it opens with a bunch of moms sitting around talking about being tired. Right. <laughs> Act one's already done. <laughs> is there any other movie besides the um documentary about about possession oh, that's, that I should watch that you guys have seen recently that you loved. This isn't recent, but there's a Norwegian film called Thelma. I okay. think you guys might, you might like, you guys might like, it's a kind of like, they call it Norwegian Carrie. Oh, oh interesting. It has a twist. It's huh. dark mm-hmm. and it deals with female sexuality as well and empowerment. Oh, I like that. So. I like On in the Apocalypse. because yeah, that was like, actually really fun. See, that was a fun movie. It was a musical about zombies. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And that's really cool. I've never seen like a horror musical zombie. No, it was it had that flavor of like Shaun of the Dead or something. Which and, I yeah, love. it did like a limited theatrical run around Christmas time, I believe, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, it was really, really fun. Leo, any? Uh, I like Veronica. Oh, I just, yeah. That mm-hmm. was great. Did you look into the real case? No. Oh, gosh. 
you look into that and you will not sleep. <laughs> it's, I'm it's so the, tired. It's like the only, <laughs> yeah, right. It's the only documented case in Spain of paranormal activity. Like a detective documented said, "Hey, things happened. I saw it. I was there." Those are probably like one of the only genres I have a hard time watching. Is anything that perpetuates itself to be seriously true and actually has some badass proof to back it up. It's still a movie. It's still a movie, but <laughs> I don't know that that guy knows what he's talking about. Stays Just with me. The title card says it's true. Doesn't mean anything. Uh, I'm like a hypochondriac, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, those are just the things I tell myself, right? Exactly. <laughs> to help me get through those. Awesome, Kate. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. You were so awesome. That was really good. Yeah, you're damn right. I have to work tomorrow. Oh. Early. Oh. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 35. Special thanks to our guest, Kate Siegel. Follow her at Kate Siegel Official on Instagram. That's K-A-T-E-S-I-E-G-E-L and at Kate Siegel on Twitter. That's K and the number eight, Siegel. The Haunting of Hill House is on Netflix now and definitely go and seek out Hush if you haven't already and anything and everything Kate's a part of. What a truly incredible and delightful person. We absolutely love her. Thank you so much for being part of the Boo Crew family. Till next time, Trev for the Boo Crew saying, see you on the other side. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Tim Timebomb, Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shand, Austin Wilkin, and Rachel Tahada. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation. Bye.